Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is October the 21st, 2022, a Friday. Show's on the road, which explains my background. I'm in New York City today doing a little bit of a East Coast swing, got the train this morning from Washington, D.C. to New York. Um, we're going back, symbolically at least, to Miami. We've been doing a number of conversations with Miami Book Fair uh, participants, uh, big-time, heavy-hitting authors who are going to the Book Fair uh, in the middle of November, November 13th to 20th. We did a conversation with Stacy Schiff, perhaps America's leading political biographer. She has a new book out, uh, uh, a biography of Samuel Adams. Also, we did a hilarious show or a sadly hilarious show with Jerry Stahl, the great comic, the outrageous comic who has a new book out, 999, a, a book about a, a bus tour he did of Auschwitz and Dachau. Uh, he got on the bus and went to see all the world's suffering. It wasn't virtual. It was very physical. Um, and uh, later next week, I'm doing a show with David Sachs, who's also going to be in Miami. He has a new book out, The Future is Analog, How to Create a More Human World. Well, the thing is, if you are going to go to Miami for the book fair, and I strongly suggest it, you're going to have to fly. So it's the old analog way of doing it, not digital. You can, of course, do digital with Miami and watch the guys talking on the internet, but it's not the same thing. Flying isn't, however, quite as romantic, perhaps as analog as it used to be, at least according to my guest today, who has a memoir of the glory days of, of flying. Uh, Anne Hood was uh, a stewardess at TWA, and she has a new memoir out called Fly Girl, a memoir. She's joining us from just down the road in New York. Uh, in the West Village. Anne, how glamorous were those days that you remember in Fly Girl? Andrew, they were so glamorous and I miss them. I would, I would like a little glamour when I get on a plane these days. One of the things that strikes me the most is when I'm on an airplane now and I'm so hungry and you maybe get the stale pretzels, but more likely you have to pay for something that you don't want. We used to have, when you flew in coach, this is 1978 on TWA. If you flew from New York to say LA or San Francisco, you sat at your seat and there was a menu there and you had a choice of three entrees and you had a cocktail service with um, appetizers. We used to do mozzarella and tomatoes on a skewer. And then that choice of three entree, a dessert service. You're making me hungry, Anne. I haven't had my lunch yet. And that was coach. So there's glamour for you. Never mind what we were doing up in first right. class. And, and you're not the, the only person who's nostalgic for that. Um, as you well know, um, somebody has opened the TWA hotel at yeah. JFK airport. Uh, the New York Times describes it as Martinez at the bar, Sinatra on repeat. And you can go to this hotel. You can get on the planes. You can ice skate you can drink there's a lot of drinking i think in the 60s and um definitely celebrate it generally i don't know if there are any stewardesses there i'm guessing that the staff the waitresses dress up as stewardesses um this nostalgia i mean and we're all nostalgic particularly for our 
younger days. Mm. Is it genuine? I mean, it must have also been in some ways quite tiring and, and tiresome, particularly for a, an attractive female as a stewardess. Did you get tired of groping hands and annoying men? <laughs> I'll tell you, there are as many annoying women as men sometimes. But Okay, well, I'm not excluding <laughs> men in Ireland. <laughs> um, the job is exhausting. Uh, you know, I can't, I can't, I have to tell the truth there. My feet used to hurt so much by the time I got to a hotel, you know, that often I'd have to forego the, the wonderful sightseeing right out my front door and just press my feet against the wall. Yeah, I'm not sympathetic with you on that one, Anne, because my understanding is you dressed in high heels. So you we did. That's feet. correct. Yeah. High was heels. that required or was that your thing, high heels? Oh, please, no, it was required. It was required. The rule was whenever we had our blazer on. So that would mean walking through the airport during boarding and during deplaning. In between, we were able to take our blazer off and put on like a smock, an apron kind of thing. And then we could switch into flats for the actual service. But we spent a lot of time in high heels. You even, they even was, it's not a university, but a, a place you go to train. You write about it in the book, Breach Academy yeah. in Kansas of all places. Um, <laughs> How, how did you decide to do this? You 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 studied at NYU, right? Did, was this before or after you you graduated? Um, I went undergraduate to the University of Rhode Island. I went to graduate school at NYU while okay. I was a flight attendant. Actually, I did both. Um, you got hired, and then you were sent off to their training academy. You know, Americans was in Dallas. TWA's happened to be in Kansas City. Um, I started in 1978. Just a few years earlier, they were called Charm Farms. Oh, my God. Well, <laughs> for people who aren't watching, um, just listening, you should have seen Anne's face after that. Was that Charm. disreputable, Anne, naughty, or just, again, annoying? I think I think that just, it was annoying because it just perpetrated that sex kitten, um, coffee, tea, or me stereotype. Yeah, actually, on Sunday, I've got a... I'm doing an interview with a, a woman who's written a book about the real Miss Moneypenny. Oh, really? We can only think of J James Bond in all this. Um, yeah. Did you, w were there some men on board who behaved like James Bond? Well, there were men who tried. <laughs> <laughs> did any of them pull it off? I don't mean literally. Yeah, no. Yeah, like, there were some suave men. I mean, working first class then, it was all men. Women were not in first class unless they were celebrities or, you know, politicians. But uh, all the businessmen in 1978, 79, 80 were still men. And uh, some of them were quite sophisticated and suave. Most and you had your own, and as you acknowledge, um, yeah. you were no uh, nun, you had your own fun on, 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 on in this career. Absolutely. I mean, when you're 21 years old, one of the reasons you want to do the job is to have fun, <laughs> to see the world and meet people and, you know, I had many misadventures on my layovers and a lot of good adventures, too. What's a give, give me your best, your your most um, amusing misadventure. And, and this is not a family show, so you can say anything you want. Really? OK, so I was quite wide eyed and quite innocent. And I had a layover in Los Angeles, a long layover. And, you know, I came of age in the late 60s and 70s. And so I had a very romantic image of Los Angeles and Laurel Canyon in particular with Jody Mitchell and Crosby yeah, yeah, yeah. and all that stuff. 
And I get asked out by a passenger who was in charge of a company that made and distributed shampoo and conditioner with jojoba in it, which I'd never heard of until then. Anyway, he was quite, you know, flashy and darling. And he asked me out to dinner and where does he take him but to Laurel Canyon? Like it was just this, you know, young girl's dream come true. I thought at any minute Neil Young was going to walk by or something. But then after he wanted to show me his house and how beautifully designed it was, and I fell for that line and we went up that canyon of those curvy roads into this beautiful like glass and cedar house. But of course he had other intentions and I really had not thought he did. I mean, I really was that naive. I think I was 22, fresh out of Rhode Island, you know. And um, when I got the message across to him that no, that wasn't what I had in mind, he didn't want to take me back to the hotel. So I was considering how I was going to navigate those roads at night when finally he relented and took me in his you know, Porsche convertible sports car driving so fast because he was so mad at me. But yeah, well, that's the worst of misadventure you had. You had a pretty yeah fun career. I mean, you didn't have to fight him off. You didn't have to. I did a little kick him with your high heels. I did a little fighting, but the the best part of it, so it turned into an adventure, I guess, is that as I got out of the car, he did give me a large supply of jojoba shampoo. So I <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, <okay. that> was... <laughs> And then you had, uh, again, my understanding is is you had a number of love affairs, some in London, some in Lisbon. Where's the best place uh, for a, a young woman to have a love affair? Definitely Lisbon. That was one of my most romantic nights. I Yeah, Lisbon is very hot. And, I mean, it's, it's very fashionable now. I was actually there earlier this year. It wasn't quite as fashionable in the 60s. No, it, well, this was the 70s, but it was pretty run down. It was dilapidated, and um, they were still recovering from an earthquake that had actually happened a, quite a while before. They had it rebuilt. But I have to tell you, I am a sucker for city lights at night. So even in a decrepit city, when those lights twinkle, I think it's pretty intoxicating. What about the, the economics of, of TWA? How did they, I mean, of course, they went bankrupt, yeah. but how did they make the business work if i assume they were paying you reasonably well certainly better than the current oh stuff yeah, we pay. Very well. they were feeding they were feeding people well uh, even in in coach yep. the tickets weren't that expensive how did they make it pay well they didn't they were forever in debt you know when i got hired to be a flight attendant i was hired by united and twa and my business major roommate said go with united they're a solid company but I said, United is going to base me in Cleveland and I'm going to be flying to like, you know, Albany. I don't want that. I want the glamour. You know, I want to go to Paris. And so I went with TWA and they were forever in danger of going out of business until they finally did. <laughs> so. Why do you think airlines get such a bad, I mean, American airlines get such a bad rap these days? I mean, you even bashed them a little bit at the beginning. I'm a frequent flyer on United. And I, I have to say that, they treat me very well. Mm -hmm. um, the service is reasonable. I mean, they sometimes screw up, yep. obviously. Uh, what is it about airlines that seem particularly to bring out the worst in us? We fight on them. We spit at one another. We loathe each other. Well, I think when they started adding all those extra rows, you know, like the guy's head is in your lap, you know, when he puts his seat back. Um, it's just too tight. I think it's uncomfortable and too tight. I mean, if you're lucky enough to fly in comfort class or business class or first class, I guess that that takes that problem away. But I think most of us fly in coach and um, it's pretty miserable in there. 
and you don't eat. I mean, I, I counted. Well, you can always take your own food on. I mean, you don't eat on a on. I just got the train from DC to New York. There's no. I mean, there is food, but you can bring your own sandwiches. It's not as if you starve. Well, I guess so. But I have to say, I had recently 17 hours where I was unable to have food because I left my apartment so early, like 4 a.m. Nothing was open at the airport to buy. I mean, I guess I could have bought a candy bar or something. There was no service on the plane, and I had to rush to my connection. And honestly, I think I got by on all those hours with maybe a bag of peanuts or something. So I think people are kind of crabby, cramped. And hungry, and that's why you're, hungry. yeah. And you're people will be very familiar with a lot of your other works. You've, you've done a lot of writing, very popular writing, a lot of writing actually on food. Um, you note in the book that sometimes you would carve Chateaubriand in front of the first class passengers. How good was the food? I mean, at the moment on airlines, even in first class, the food's pretty awful. How good was the food when you were working? It was good. And I have to confess, I even liked the coach food. We used to have this pot roast that I loved in coach whenever <laughs> that's what I would always take for my crew meal. Um, first class food was great. On international, it was beyond great. It was, you know, lamb chops cooked to order, that Chateaubriand you mentioned, it was caviar, beautiful cheeses. It was, it, yeah. it was good. Uh, compared though to restaurant food today, I mean, you—you, you, I know you're married to a food writer. You've written books of your own on food. Well, if I have my, how does it compare? Choice, if I have my choice, I'd rather have my husband's duck confit made me the other night than any of the food on that airplane. <laughs> I mean, how did how did they pull that off? You know, it was all it was all um, cooked beforehand, reheated when you got on board. Well, in coach, definitely, uh, you were just reheating stuff. Um, in first class, the food was like partially cooked and you finished it. That's why the Chateaubriand and lamb chops were to order. You you turn an oven on and cook it for so many mm -hmm. minutes and hope that it, you know, that you cooked it perfectly. Typically, you I mean, did, though. You trained pretty well um, to do all that stuff. That was the easy stuff. What was the hardest stuff? The hard stuff was, you know, lifting and moving and carrying those carts you pushed up and down the aisles. It, you're never really flat on an airplane, so you're doing a lot of uphill pushing and um, helping people put their bags in the overhead bins and all that stuff is really, it was physically hard. And did you mostly work international? Yeah, I would say more than half of my time was international. And I loved that because I was never a fan of the boarding and deplaning that you do on domestic flights, you know, where you're doing four or five or six stops. And so um, you were you were doing that suitcase stuff and finding seats and navigating all that. On international, they came on once, they stayed with you a really long time. You got to talk to passengers and uh, sit down and watch a movie sometimes, you know, if you finished everything up. Um, and... My sense as a someone who's flown a great deal, not as much as you, but I've flown a great deal, is that the really critical moment in the history of flying, particularly in the United States, was 9-11. Yeah. Um, before 9-11, it was fun. And after 9-11, it wasn't. I, when did you stop work? I worked from 78 to 86. Do you so so you didn't actually work during 9-11, but do you agree? I mean, was 9-11 really the critical moment when flying turned into a nightmare? I think so. I think it changed everything about flying. I mean, 
remember how you, you I'm sure remember how you could get off a plane and the person picking you up would be standing right there. And that's one of the things I missed. Yeah, I mean, I, I watched uh, I was watching a, a movie um, from 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 the 80s and it just was taken for granted. You just walk to the gate. Anyone could walk to the gate. There was yeah. no security. I used to love that. Get stepping off in that person that you were going to visit was waiting with open arms and that changed and even like getting dropped off and picked up. We know that's kind of a pain, but those are the, those are the um, annoyances, but I don't know how safe people feel on pl planes after nine 11. It changed. It just changed. But, it well, but, but that's paranoia because there's nothing safer than flying. And when you were, when you were working in the seventies and eighties, it was far less safe, both in terms of hijacking and in terms of crashes. That's just what I was going to say. Um, it was the golden age of flying for its glamour, but it was also called the golden age of hijacking. And in fact, a, a flight that I was, it was the flight pattern I was working, but I was three days behind this one, was hijacked, a famous TWA, I guess it was 85, um, hijacked in Athens. And those people were on that plane for something like three days flying to different airports. People were killed. I mean, it was very, it was very real back then. Did you have any uh, security dangerous moments when it comes to flying? Any near misses? Any emergency landings? I had, you know, not really, not exciting ones. I did was once in a 707. I don't know if you remember those, but they were obsolete the day they hit the runways. They were noisy. They burned too much oil, but they had two engines on each wing. And we uh, land. We blew a tire on landing and kind of spun out. Uh, and the plane tipped. Had it tipped a little more, and one of those engines had touched the ground, we would have been in big trouble. But it didn't. And we did. People could get off the plane with just stairs. We didn't have to jump down the chutes or anything. But it was pretty scary. Um, and I once had passengers on a flight out of Dulles to Paris, who wouldn't put their very large black bags in the overhead they they wanted to hold them in their lap for takeoff and landing and i argued with them a bit and then they said these need to be in our laps we control them and so it became kind of mm. a security issue but you know what was in there televisions <laughs> oh my god they had bought them at duty free or something but anyway it, we didn't know that till we took them off the plane but is dallas the worst american airport i flew in there this week it's it's so awful isn't it terrible that the pods? Oh my goodness, terrible! What's your what's what's your favorite airport in the world? Oh, in the world, I really like. Or those. in America, are there any good airports? I mean, JFK wasn't bad until it shut down. JFK. Of. Well, I'll tell you when I flew out of you showed the TWA hotel. That's where I used to go to work when Terminal Five was the TWA International Terminal. It was fabulous. Yeah. Yeah, I remember it was, that. Do you remember that? I mean, it was so beautiful. The hotel's kind of a hoot because where um, you used to go and buy your tickets is where you check in for the hotel now. And I, they did a really good job. It's, yeah, it's my local, her, my I was going to say my local hotel, my local airport, San Francisco, I, I actually think is a, is a very good airport. I, I like San Francisco. Different. Yeah, that's a nice one. I don't I mean, like New York. You're from New York. I mean, it really has the worst. Newark, I mean, uh, LaGuardia has been improved, but they're pretty miserable. I have to tell you, I flew out of LaGuardia a couple weeks ago. There's a new Delta terminal. It was terrible. It, it was you. It, it was very. It was too big, and 
Um, you had to walk really far. It was like Heathrow where they had the signs like uh, 11 minutes to your gate. You know how Heathrow does that and makes you nervous? Yeah. It was like that. It was weird. I, I think Heathrow and Charles de Gaulle are my two least favorite in Europe. So, so tell me a little bit more about why, you, as I said, you're a much published, much loved writer, many best-selling books. Why did you choose to write your memoir around this whole TWA uh, air thing? I know it's funny that I did it so many years after I flew. I, I think it was a slow realization that I had done something kind of interesting during a really interesting time in aviation and an interesting time for flight attendants. I used to always tell my stories. You know, I die, I've dined out on some of my anecdotes about strange passengers and weird things that happened on planes. And people are always so interested, like you were a flight attendant. Tell me about this. Tell me about that. I'd happily oblige. And people always said, you should write a book about that. And I thought, what's the book? It's just a bunch of anecdotes. But when I realized that I flew at such a historically fascinating, important time, and that I kind of came of age at 36,000 feet during that time, it suddenly became a memoir about kind of growing up. And I wonder if it's also in a way a nostalgia about the glory days, not so much of flying, but of America. Um, I, I travel internationally a great deal, and, and I still think traveling is quite glamorous. When you look at the charts for the best airports in the world, there are some magnificent airports. Uh, the new one in Istanbul, for example, or in Singapore. In the top 10 list, there are no Americans. And the same is true of airlines. There are some good airlines. Uh, you can yeah. eat well even on airlines. But again, when you look at the best airlines in the world, none of them are American. Qatar, no. Singapore, Emirates, all Nippon, Qantas, Japan, Turkish, Air France, Korean and Swiss. So my question for you is, has what's gone wrong with the American airline industry, is that itself a reflection of what's gone wrong more broadly in America itself? Why America is not the star it was, why people don't want to come here, why people don't take America or Americans seriously anymore. I think you've hit it. I think the airline, uh, the problems with our airlines, our lack of customer service, our kind of lack of making things work better. They used to be, we used to be so on time. I used to think almost every airport I went into when I flew in the United States was beautiful in its way. I don't mean to sound idealistic, but I certainly don't feel that way now. It's a general, you know, rundown of run, everything's getting run down. We don't fix things as quickly. Customer service is not what it used to be. Uh, yeah, I would much rather fly an international airline, to tell you the truth. If I have a choice, I'd pick the international one. And isn't we, I mean, I'm speaking collectively as people who travel on airlines, we can't blame them. We have to blame ourselves because Ultimately, we want everything. We want the cheapest tickets and we want the best quality service. And you can't have both. Well, that's what deregulation addressed, actually, back in 1978, when Ted Kennedy and Stephen Beyer put out this bill and it got passed into law. It was, we're paying a lot of money for flights, but we're not filling seats. So people aren't really able, the regular people aren't really, you know, can't fly and when interviewed about this many years later, it's like, look at what it's like to fly now, Stephen Byer. What do you think about your uh, deregulation? He said, I don't think people want to pay $1,800 so that their briefcase can have a seat, meaning that's what would happen. I mean, I used to fly pretty empty planes. Yeah, I remember how empty planes used to be. So yeah. explain the connection between deregulation and the fact that 
every plane now is is full and um, yeah. and, and and the service is bad and the, well, the service is bad i think as airlines uh busted all the unions and corporate raiders who didn't care about flying started running airlines you know howard hughes was a terrible business person with twa but he loved aviation and he loved flying and he wanted people who got on twa to have a great experience so and the same was true for other airlines, uh, one trip with Pan Am. They wanted people to love being on their airlines. When businessmen started who didn't really care about aviation, just wanted to either make money or sell the airline, things started to deteriorate service-wise for sure and, and labor-wise. Um, but deregulation in the United States before that, uh, the government uh, locked the airfares. So it wasn't really competitive. And they also told airlines where they could fly and where they couldn't fly. So you couldn't really expand um, at your will. It became the Wild West with deregulation. I, I don't know if you remember these airlines, like People Express. Yeah, like, I remember People's like, Express. And what was the one uh, that they all wore brown uniforms? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Braniff? I don't know. I can't remember. But I think my friend flew $99 round trip to London out of Newark on people. Yeah, I used to do that in the 80s all the time. Yeah, yeah so all those airlines came, but then they couldn't, they weren't But now you have a new wave of it. It is Norwegian. You can fly cheaply now. Yes, yeah, Spirit and Breeze. There's a whole bunch now coming. So how, how do you feel about the Southwests and the Jet Blues of the world? Are they innovating? Are they doing anything right? Are we going back in, in, in a sense, perhaps, to a little bit of the innovation of the 60s? I like JetBlue a lot. I, I don't know. When I get on a JetBlue airplane, I feel like I'm on an airplane. Like it's pretty. It's if you, it's got that that vibe, that nice airplane vibe. Uh, I, I'm I'm not a fan of the cattle call stuff with Southwest. I have to admit, when I'm in my group, line up for B, fight for your seat. I I, I don't know. I'm not a fan of that. But I fly them. <laughs> but I don't love that. You part. don't have any uh, privileges because there are no more TWA flights. I don't, but in a, I do in a way because my friend who flew with me at TWA went to American when, when they took over TWA and he flew with them for 35 years. He's retired. He never married. So I'm his buddy, which means I can use free passes. Um, but try finding a flight with an empty seat. Really, I always assume that all these flights are full of yeah. people so, like your friend. Yeah, so standby. It used to be you almost always got on a flight um, on standby with your pass, but not so much anymore. It's really hard. My son and I were uh, stuck in India, and I thought, mm, I'm not going to do this anymore. <laughs> I think I'll pay. I'll pay the full price. Do you still keep your um, uniforms, your TWA? Do you ever put them on? No, this was, <laughs> if only I could. Oh, that's very nice of you. I won't, I won't ask you to put it on in this show. <laughs> you should have worn it for this. I hope you're going to wear the TWA uniform in. in Miami, that will encourage everyone to go out. Should I wear it? Should I? I, I don't have I think it. you should. I, I might even encourage that. me to come, although I, flying from San Francisco to Miami is not an edifying idea. You know, I have my uh, name tag, but I don't have my uniform. I thought, I remember putting it away in this like cedar closet my mom had. But when I, after she died and I was cleaning out her house, I never found the uniform. So I don't know where it went. Well, if you want to know more about Anne Hood's adventures on In the Sky in the 70s, uh, her book, Fly Girl, a memoir, is a wonderfully rich, very much Anne Hood, honest uh, and fun and funny and in its own way serious. Congratulations, Anne. I, I'm sure. Has it, is it a bestseller? I'm sure it is. All your books are bestsellers. 
uh, it's doing really well. Yeah. Independent. Well, congratulations. Yeah. It'll, you, you'll be able to fly first class now, I hope. <laughs> I hope so. From, from your mouth to God's ears. <laughs> well, if the publisher's listening or if the Miami book people are listening, Bianna, where, uh, I hope they're flying you first class. I wouldn't go if you're doing it in cattle. Would you negotiate that for me? That'd be great. Okay. Well, <laughs> give me a free ticket too. Anyway, wonderful talking, Anna. Well, final question, as we always ask all our guests on um, on uh, on on Keenon. Um, in addition to Fly Girl, which of course everyone should buy and read, what else would you suggest people read? What books are you enjoying these days? I'll tell you my favorite book. I brought it so I could show you my copy. It's today. A woman went mad in the supermarket. Short series by Hilma Wolitzer. Uh, with a forward by Elizabeth Strout, who wrote Olive Kitteridge. Yeah. Short stories. Hilma is in her 90s. This book came out just a few months ago. And they are short stories that are as contemporary and exciting as any I've read. So I really recommend this book. 